you know, we're sitting here telling people that banks are safe, and I really believe they are. But if you have uninsured deposits, why would you do that? You don't have to. It is not hard to move your money around, and that's part of the issue that banks face. So if you have substantial amount of money above FDIC-insured limits, you know, I kind of joke, we'd get kicked out of Financial Planners Club if we didn't recommend that people move their money out of that stuff and, and make it safe. So find the online savings banks or open brokerage accounts and put money in money markets. And by the way, they're probably going to yield better than your traditional brick-and-mortar banks anyway, so you get the benefit of better earnings while also being safer. For a decade, Cahaba Wealth Management has been driven by a belief that our fiduciary responsibility is to have conversations with you, our current and future clients, to discover what really matters to you. Wealth is not created overnight. Instead, it is earned by having a solid blueprint that allows you to plan and build for the future. Our goal with this podcast is to share our best practices and strategies about creating a secure and joyous future, while also addressing ideas in the marketplace that do not work as well. Join us on this journey as we discuss the ups and downs of the investment world to educate you and help you make the best possible decisions for your financial well-being. Let's go now to the There Is A Better Way podcast. Hello, listeners. This is MJ Durkin, the host of the There Is A Better Way podcast brought to you by Cahaba Wealth Management. We are really glad uh, that you are here. We have a very fascinating uh, financial discussion. Uh, we are talking to uh, Henry Weidman uh, and Brian O'Neill. They are both partners with Cahaba Wealth Management. Uh, gentlemen, how are you today? Good morning, MJ. Doing very well. Thank you. Hello, MJ. Good to be here. We are glad that you are here. And uh, we are here to talk about uh, a very uh, kind of timely, important topic that has been on people's minds the last uh, couple of weeks is the uh, the individual uh, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, how things got uh, got started with Silicon Valley Bank and and Brian Brian O'Neill. Um, why don't you take us through and talk to us a little bit about uh, some of the issues uh, that. Um, uh, kind of why the, the SVB uh, collapse happened. Sure, MJ. Um, we like to talk about with our clients the idea that the economy in general and banking specifically are very much a belief system. Um, you know, when you, when you go buy something and hand a green piece of paper to somebody, there is a belief on one end that that piece of paper is worth whatever number is printed on it, and that they will then turn around and trade something of value to you. But that, that really is at its core all that is. There's nothing behind that piece of paper, especially since we went off the gold standard in the 1970s. Banking is similar in a lot of ways. You deposit your money in a bank, and you believe that that money is there. And in reality, it is to an extent, but banks are by law allowed to loan out as much as 90% of the money you deposit in the bank. So if you put $1,000 in the bank today and go back tomorrow and take that same $1,000 out, in many cases, you're probably taking somebody else's money who just deposited their money that morning. They could have lent that out to somebody for a real estate project, to buy a house, to buy a car. So banking is very much a belief system. And what happened at Silicon Valley Bank was their depositors lost that belief. Now, some of that, much of that was due to some really poor decision-making at Silicon Valley Bank. And again, 
we've tried to encourage our clients to understand that, yes, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, and then following that, Signature Bank in New York. Uh, and then we obviously had very much on the heels of that Credit Suisse. But those things are are they're interrelated because once you start questions about banking, it ripples through the entire banking sector. But each one of those is unique. And we're trying to encourage people to look at this and say those happened, but this is not 2008 and 2009 all over again. So we want to make sure people understand why what happened at Silicon Valley happened. And the best way I can put it is is the people who run that bank uh, would have probably failed a banking 101 class. So they were doing things that um, were pretty obvious to most people ultimately would would cause problems if interest rates went up. And lo and behold, in 2022, interest interest rates went up substantially. They had bought securities with the money that people deposited. So unlike when, when people say, is this 0809 all over again? First thing is, Silicon Valley Bank actually, in many cases, did not lend out the money that their depositors put in that bank. Uh, they tried to look at it and say, are there projects we could lend to? And the short answer they came up with was some, but in many cases, they had excess deposits. You think about what happened in the pandemic. There was a lot of funding for a government projects to kind of stimulate the economy to bring us out of the pandemic, hopefully. And B, not soon thereafter, you know, everybody thought the only thing in the world that was going to make money were technology companies. Um, Zoom video that we're doing these calls on. Uh, people were working from home and technology companies received both funding in terms of government funding, but also in many cases, they, they struck while the iron was hot and went public and sold stock. So Silicon Valley Bank, who banks many of those companies, ended up having their deposits go from $60 billion in 2020 to over $200 billion by the end of 2022. So they had a massive influx of cash, much of which was uninsured. So Henry and I will talk later on about FDIC insurance and how people should keep their cash safe and things like that. But basically, in a nutshell, the FDIC insures deposits up to $250,000. By most accounts, 95 plus percent of all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were above that $250,000 limit. So the point being, it wasn't as safe as, say, mom and pop who have $10,000 in the bank who know their deposits are insured. The Silicon Valley Bank invested in securities that were very safe. MJ, they were United States Treasury notes or um, mortgage-backed securities, things that shouldn't effectively go to zero, but that doesn't mean their price doesn't change. And when interest rates go up, price, a bond, and it does go down. So Silicon Valley basically was left in a situation where they had a lot of cash, they invested it in securities that lost value, and they made a report on March the 8th that said, oh, by the way, we had some deposits leave. So in order to give that money to the people who took their money out of the bank, we had to sell some of those securities and they took a $1.8 billion loss. Three days later, they were bankrupt. So the speed was astonishing. 
<laughs> well, the uh, uh, as as somebody said to me, you know, the 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 uh, uh, electronic speed which which people were able to withdraw, you know, their money, you know, as soon as the alarm went out, you know, it was uh, literally people from their cell phones on planes, trains, and automobiles were were. <laughs> We're using their thumbs to withdraw. What was it about four billion, four billion dollars an hour? That uh, it, I, yeah, it was it was incredible. And you know, one of the anecdotes we've had banking crises before. Obviously, oh eight oh nine was was very much a significant crisis. The difference then is that the banks made bad loans, so the money literally disappeared. They made a loan, and the project that the loan was made on failed. So that was all built on leverage and credit. This is different. It's just the securities that were invested in were safe, but they went down in value. But yes, because they were, the deposits were not insured, the speed at which people could yank it out, you know, it just was an overnight. It was the definition of a bank run. Anecdotally, uh, there's a lot of stories about a bank crisis in 1907, where the original uh, J.P. Morgan, in many cases, is is viewed as having rescued the U.S. economy. He put some of his own money in to help save the banks. But the other thing he did was he told the, the bank tellers at his bank, slow down, count money slower, read their balances out twice. And thus the money couldn't go out the door as fast. And back then he had to line up at the bank and literally come out with a bag of cash. Today, like you said, at the flick of a thumb, it's gone. So Silicon Valley, um, as much as it you know, it scared people. It scared the market. It, it reminds people of, of 08 and 09. It, it's not that. And they made really poor decisions about what to do with their money. They also, I, I have a friend in the banking business at a very large bank, and I asked him, you know, at, at your bank, it's one of the top 15 banks in the country, at your bank, how much of the deposits in your bank are uninsured above that $250,000 limit? And at Silicon Valley, it was north of 90 plus, maybe as much as 95 plus percent of the money was uninsured. He said at our bank, it's the other way around. Maybe 10% is uninsured. So the vast majority of banks are not operating with a deposit base that is needing to run out the door at the first sign of trouble. And so, you know, while we can't guarantee anything, um, we saw Signature Bank collapse in New York. They were banking cryptocurrency stuff, which we've always said, be careful of that. Um, Credit Suisse had to get married to UBS in Switzerland. They've been a terrible bank for 25 years. They barely made it out of the financial crisis, and they've been getting bailed out ever since. There's probably somebody else going to get caught with their shorts down. But at the end of the day, this is more about being judicious and so when Henry and I talk in a few minutes about what should you do with cash, it's about being reasonable with the amount of risk you take. And even in the good times, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, things were going really well. And they lost sight of the amount of risk they were taking and didn't help that they didn't have a chief risk officer for as many as nine months. But um, that's another story as well. So in a nutshell, uh, Yes, there are challenges and, and banks are going to have to be more cautious and careful, but we do not believe this has any reminiscence of 2008 and 2009, but we'll have to make it through and understand that there are going to be some challenges that that causes. Well, the, the repercussions are, are being felt, but I, I, I like your comments about, 
you know, uh, first of all, they they should have they they apparently failed the banking 101 class. Uh, that's a that's a great, that's a great statement. Uh, and uh, and apparently they um, uh, and, and what you're and, and Henry, I, I'd like you to speak to this uh, for a second. I mean, really what this it's really an anomaly to have such. I mean, you usually don't have people that have half a billion dollars in deposits. Uh <laughs> in a bank right so this was so it really was a a, speak to it for for, speak to us for a minute about it being a very a very uh insular kind of uh um situation well you know it really is i mean i i like brian said i fully expect there will be some other situation that could have some similarities but by and large uh decision making uh at every level with Silicon Valley Bank was horrible. Not not just at the the management level, but even the depositor level. I mean, ninety five percent of all deposits were over the FDIC insurance. I mean, you know, I mean, the, is anyone advising these people? Were they seeking advice? I mean, it's just horrible thinking. Um, uh, you know, in doing that, and then you've got the the management at the bank level. I mean, uh, yeah, U.S. Treasuries are safe. In other words, the government's not going to default. But you go out thirty years. You know, did anyone give them some advice about the, the inverse relationship between higher interest rates and bond prices? Um, you know, Brian's right. I mean, they didn't go out and lend the money out at a, at a risky level the way that things happened in 08 and 09. But, uh, but the decision making of where to put that money was just horrendous. And, and in today's world, you know, when there's a, you know, a glimpse of, of negative news affecting the bottom line of any bank, um, it's going to travel fast. And even, and Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the CEO pretty much broadcasted in some ways that they had to, you know, write off $1.8 billion in bond losses. And whenever you step up to the podium and you give the, hey, we're okay speech, look out. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a sign <laughs> yeah, that like you're not okay. Just a vote of confidence <laughs> for a football coach. But yeah, they, <laughs> they had to make a, a, a filing an SEC filing called an 8K, which they published on March the 8th, saying, uh, yes, by the way, um, we lost $1.8 billion. And it literally, that was it. Within 72 hours, the doors of that bank were shut. Um, This doesn't even get into the regulatory side. The regulators messed up horrendously on this as well. Uh, I do get frustrated sometimes when we hear, anytime there's a crisis, you'll get the call for more rules and more regulations. Um, and in many cases, it really is about just just enforce the regulations that are already in place. Um, the San Francisco Federal Reserve uh, that that regulates banks out there had already flagged this bank for having troublesome amounts of money in long duration treasuries, but they did nothing about it. In addition, they didn't step in as quickly as they probably should have. I mean, the reality was. Does anybody think that money doesn't move fast in 2023? And they should have known the second they announced that it was going to cause a a shockwave. But they just, you know, this is unfortunately the nature of government many times. They can't anticipate the speed at which the world works. And if they'd have stepped in more quickly, they probably could have salvaged the bank and and gotten a buyer, um, you know, organized before they had to shut the doors. They were just trying to get to Friday because that buys them Saturday and Sunday. They couldn't even get to Friday. So, yeah, it was it's just bad decision making in a lot of respects, whether it's the bank management, the regulators, um, you know, it's worrisome that a lot of the bank management were selling stock in advance of this. So I think there's going to be some stuff that comes out about that. 
But in the grand scheme of things, again, this is not your basic banks, mom and pop stuff. But what Henry and I do want to talk about, MJ, and maybe this is how we pivot, you still have to pay attention to this stuff. And do we have a lot of clients who have multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars in banks? No, but we certainly have some. And maybe you're running a business, for example. And Henry pointed out, you know, these business owners very quickly could have lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, MJ, are you aware of Roku, the kind of the television <laughs> platform? Yeah, yeah. They only they, they had, only they only had a half a billion in there, right? <laughs> I mean, crazy. Like, and it could have disappeared, but the you know the federal government stepped in and. I do think it's clear to, or it's it's important to say that taxpayers will not be on the hook for any bailout. The FDIC is going to bail out any money that was uninsured, and it will come back through higher FDIC premiums to the banks in the future. But that said, I mean, as a business, why on earth would you keep that much cash laying around in a bank account? So it just continues, I think, to place a high high level of importance on risk management. And, and advice, Henry said, you know, are they not getting advised by anybody to do something different with this? And so we want to talk about what are people's options for cash who maybe do have a lot of money laying around? What should they do? Well, you know, to add on to that, Brian, it's really about, as we teach our clients, you know, um, remaining disciplined, even when things are good. You know, you go by the SVB. I mean, those guys just got caught up in all the deposits and then they were actually trying to chase yield uh, with the the investment into, the, into those treasuries without even thinking about the fact that rates could move against them. And, uh, you know, and so even at the, the depositor level, you know, remaining disciplined and being aware of all the risk at all times, even when things um, are going well for you. Uh, that's that's really what it's all about. So. Well, that, that's really well said, and I, I think that's a, a perfect place to to pivot. Uh, and I want all of our listeners to hear that you know that 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 what what Cahaba Wealth Management recommends to their clients is you know remaining disciplined even when things are good. That's a there's a one liner that uh, should go on the wall at, uh, <laughs> at apparently every institution. Uh, but um, uh, let's uh, Henry maybe talk to us a little bit about. Um, uh, what should, what, what are the things that you're recommending to your clients right now to, uh, to, to, to be disciplined, to be, to feel comfortable about, uh, about the markets? What, 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 uh, what are you, what are you telling people to do? What are, what are the actual recommendations that you're making? Well, when it comes to just holding cash, okay. So people, you know, there are many different reasons to hold cash. I mean, you may have a short-term goal of, of buying a house, or you may have education coming up or something, um, you know, and it's all about, we, we teach our clients about investing based on risk tolerance and time horizon, okay? Um, everybody wants as much yield or return for the amount of risk they're willing to take uh, for the amount of time horizon they have before they need the money. Okay, but then, but since we're on the cash theme today, I'll talk a little bit about just the cash returns and holdings and the options that you have out there. I mean, obviously, you know, 
the safest place that most people feel that they can put their money uh, from a short-term cash standpoint is just in their local bank, right? I mean, in the in the checking account, in the passbook savings account, and they also have the money market deposit accounts that they have. But all those things are on the books of that particular bank. And so FDIC insurance is very important, uh, as we've already talked about, uh, when, 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 when investing or leaving money with, with an institution or bank. Um, obviously, checking accounts, you probably will have no yield if any at all, because you're, you know, it's a liquid, right checks, debit cards, just in and out type stuff. Uh, passbook savings accounts are going to be that traditional, you know, longer term uh, place to put the money with the bank, but you still can withdraw at will. Uh, and for that, you may get a higher yield, but typically not that much. Okay. Uh, then people look at with the bank, maybe the money market deposit accounts. Now, you know, there's some confusion on the definition of money market versus money market deposit accounts, right? Uh, money markets in general with the bank will pay even a higher yield, but you're not typically going to get the same yield as you would with a regular money market. Uh, you know, the ones that's with the bank are called the money market deposit accounts. Uh, money market funds have gained a lot of traction over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's been amazing. We've had a, a really sharp increase in, in short-term interest rates and money market funds uh, typically will react quickly to that. Uh, to give an example, most like money market funds that you'd have with say a brokerage account uh, with Fidelity, with Schwab, with some of these larger firms are paying north of 4% right now. And then those things are completely liquid. Uh, but, you know, usually, and I think Brian will agree with this, usually when you have a higher rate of return in something, you're giving, you're giving up something. You're either giving up, you know, the ability to liquidate you know, at will, or you're giving up a little bit in terms of risk. Okay. Uh, money market funds, uh, the history, I think, I think the first one opened those back in 1971, I believe. And, um, and the whole thing about money markets, it is a, is a portfolio of short-term cash instruments. It could be, it could be um, you know, short-term T-bills, it could be short-term CDs or whatever. And they're, they're being managed for a yield uh, with the idea that we're going to preserve principle. But that principle is not guaranteed. It's just very, very, very uh, likely that it will not go down below what they call a $1 net asset value. Okay, so these brokerage firms will manage this short-term portfolio uh, all with the idea of preserving that $1 net asset value. So if it ever went below that $1, we, we term that as breaking the buck. That's that's what's known as, you know, a money market fund that would fall below the the one dollar net asset value. And there's only a handful that's ever happened. I mean, it, you go all the way back to 1971. There were a few prior to not to 2008. Uh, I think there was one in 1994, but it was an institutional money market fund and there was no investor that lost a dollar. But in 2008, uh, this is really one of two that I know of uh, historically that, that that that's broken the buck, and it was because it was one day after Lehman Brothers fell in 2008, and there was some you know instruments that were invested or held with Lehman Brothers uh, that the money market fund had to write them off, and so it broke the buck. Now then there was a large fear of people just running, kind of like they did with S SVP, just taking the money out of all money market funds. So the government stepped in. Uh, when there was a hint of another one breaking the buck, and they shorted it up, okay? And they said, all right, so all money and market the, And funds. the interesting part, at the risk of, of interrupting, no, okay. and I can't remember the name of the fund, but the fund that broke the buck in 2008 was the inventor 
of the money market fund <laughs> and they broke the buck. So it, it just goes to show you that you can never know, um, you know, who's doing what. And if Henry's right, the, the inflow out of bank deposits into money markets this last month and a half has been astounding. We're talking, I, I saw a number the other day of something in the neighborhood of $650 billion has moved from traditional bank accounts into money markets. So Henry, maybe even for a minute, speak to, we just talked about there is risk in money markets, but it's it's a much more manageable risk than, for example, if you're out there trying to invest in your own individual bonds and things like that. There's no guarantee on a money market, but they certainly are still considered incredibly safe compared to other instruments. Um, but they also get different kind of insurance protection. And that's where a lot of money has been flowing. So Henry, can you talk a little bit about the protections that you can get inside of a brokerage account with money markets? Well, I mean, the thing about it is, I mean, money market funds with a brokerage company, you do want to go, if you're going into a money market fund, you want to make sure you're with a large brokerage because they have a vested interest in making sure that that never breaks the buck. I mean, their entire reputation depends on the fact that they maintain that $1 net asset value, okay? Uh, money market instruments typically, well, one reason they're safe is that, you know, the underlying investments can't really, the duration can't go longer than 397 days, and, and the weighted average is 90 days. The credit quality has to be AAA, which is the best. Um, you know, so those three things together will, it doesn't guarantee, but it really gives you a lot of, you know, good feeling that that chances are you're not going to lose your money. Um, you know, like I said earlier, the money market deposit funds with the bank do have the FDIC insurance, but the government uh, or the, the 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 brokerage account money markets do not. Um, there's some SIPC coverage for fraud and stuff like that, uh, but for the most part, they're not technically insured by a government agency of going down. But history will suggest, you know, although not guaranteed, that the government might would step in if it was a major crisis. Something like that. And that's why people feel safe with us. So. Well, well and, and SIPC insurance is is important to understand. Uh, like FDIC, SIPC exists to protect securities accounts. And you know, in the absence of these securities in a money market going bankrupt, you know, for example, a bond that was purchased, and as Henry said, you're buying 90-day T-bills and things like that that are effectively government guarantees. It's backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. The odds of that security failing are incredibly low. So the SIPC is typically more protective of if, if, as Henry said, there was fraud or something like that, where the regulators can step in and say, the money's there. We just need to move it from point A to point B. And SIPC insurance, actually, you know, we've got client accounts and I don't want to speak to specific brokerage firms and things like that. But for example, the SIPC insurance would cover cash up to $1.9 million. So I think people can feel a little more safe if they do utilize money market mutual funds, as Henry's referring to them, compared to money market deposit funds at banks. So, you know, at well, a the, high the level, other thing, Brian, not to interrupt, I'm sorry, but the other thing is that it's not on the books of, say, Fidelity or Schwab or whatever. So even right. though you don't have the FDIC insurance, you're not you know, focused on one entity, you know, like SVP. You know, the people that had FDIC insurance, they were fine, but the ones that weren't because that one particular bank had issues, you know, with a money market fund with a brokerage account, it's, it's a diversified, you know, portfolio of cash instruments. 
you know. So even even if it did break the buck, it's not. I mean, chances of it going all the way to zero is virtually zero. Yeah. You know, because of that. Yeah. So. So we're we're trying to you know talk to our clients about having a mix of different instruments, and there are online savings accounts, for example, um, American Express and Capital One Three Hundred and Sixty. You can see the the credit card companies; they will have savings accounts where you can open up accounts online, connect them to your own checking account, and move money electronically. You get FDIC insurance there. So you know if anybody has substantial amounts of cash. The FDIC insured limit is $250,000 per depositor, so a joint account, a husband and wife, to get a $500,000 of FDIC insurance. And then you could put $500,000 at an American Express personal savings account. So you can quickly move your money around and, and you know, it kind of ends up, MJ, it's one of the strange dynamics of the financial world. You know, we're sitting here telling people that banks are safe, and I really believe they are. But if you have uninsured deposits, why would you do that? You don't have to. It is not hard to move your money around, and that's part of the issue that banks face. So if you have substantial amount of money above FDIC insured limits, you know, I kind of joke, we'd get kicked out of the Financial Planners Club if we didn't recommend that people move their money out of that stuff and, and make it safe. So find the online savings banks or open brokerage accounts and put money in money markets. And by the way, they're probably going to yield better than your traditional brick and mortar banks anyway. So you get the benefit of better earnings while also being safer. Well, the brick and mortar, there's a lot of overhead. You know, when you're dealing with an yeah. online bank, you know, you don't have all the overheads that you have typically. And so they can pay higher yields. And then it gets competitive. Like if you go to bankrate.com, you know, you can see they're all listed there in, in chronological order who has the highest rate, right? And they all see that. So they all compete. You know, you create a competitive market with with those guys. Um, you know, and I think, um, you know, the other things that you could, I'll go back to what I said earlier about, you know, how do you increase yield? on your cash, right? Um, you either have to give up liquidity or you have to give up a little bit of risk, right? So you can also do CDs. I mean, obviously people know exactly what most people knows what those are. Uh, they're different types. You know, you have different uh, durations. Uh, but what you'll find sometimes though is, you know, it's not always beneficial to go out five years versus the one year uh, CD because the market believes or the banks believe the interest rates may eventually go down. And so you have to really kind of shop to see what rates are out there for different ones. And you also have brokerage CDs, which are a whole nother, uh, ball of wax. You know, they're still technically CDs, but they're sold on an open secondary market. Um, and some, in some ways those act like bonds, you know, so you need to have some good advice to, you know, to sift through those things to see what, what might make some sense as well. Um, then you just have straight up government, bonds you know you have short-term t-bills which we've been doing a lot of that lately to be honest with the mj i mean uh you know in in the lot of svp uh you're looking at t-bills you don't need fdic insurance because it's a government bond it's already back 100 percent, no matter how much you put in there uh and you can buy them directly or through a broker or whatever but you know typically speaking you know right now i think a one-year t-bill you're getting north of 4.5 percent and the interest is state tax exempt because it's a government bond you know, so so those can be really attractive right now. Um, now, do you want to go into that when you have, you know, if you, if using money that you're going to buy a car next week with? No, because, you know, you could potentially lose some money depending on where interest rates at that point if you liquidate. Um, so it's all about managing time horizon as well as risk tolerance. And uh, and so, you know, obviously through the financial planning process, uh, we haven't gotten around to that yet, but that's that's what we do. And uh, and being able to manage cash and investment based on when you need it, uh, short and midterm, intermediate term, long term, um, 
you know, that's that's in a nutshell, the financial planning process will dictate, you know, how how we invest money. And uh, today I'll stay mostly on cash because that's what the topic was. But um, but yeah, you're looking at money markets, a whole lot of money going into money markets. No question about that. Uh, really good yields at the moment. But the thing about that is, you know, they're very quick as they're quick to raise interest rates when when the Fed raises their short term rates. They're also quick to lower. So, you know, in some ways, if you have a two year time horizon, accepting a lower interest rate than you could get in a money market might actually be advantageous because interest rates may go down and you may not have the same opportunity to go back into that two year, whether it be a CD or, 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 or a government bond. So there's a lot that goes into trying to manage all of that. Um, but it really just comes down to time horizon and risk tolerance as everything in investing does. Yeah. And I, I, I echo that and would say, you know, it's interesting that we started talking about what at the time was a bank that was in the top 20 in terms of size in the United States. And yet we can still tie it back to concepts that apply to people's individual financial lives. Um, the bank didn't manage their own time horizon. The problem was they didn't know what the time horizon was. They didn't know that depositors were going to yank their money out. But just like Silicon Valley Bank, individual clients need to allow for the possibility that things won't go exactly how we plan and have contingency plans, have an emergency fund, have you know optionality, for example, in your portfolio. Don't invest in a way that if something bad happens, causes you to make a bad emotional decision. So all this stuff can be tied back to our personal financial planning concepts, but we just felt like it was very useful to go through what has happened. And it's been such a high level in your face conversation these last couple of weeks about bank failures that we just, we want to encourage people to remember that if this is not 2008 and 2009, uh, at that point, 12 of the largest 13 banks in the United States would likely have gone bankrupt were it not for the TARP program that the government injected $25 billion into each of those banks, they likely all would have gone bankrupt. Uh, we had a massive credit crisis in 08-09. There was horrendous lending decisions. There was too much leverage. And when the value of real estate fell, it, all, it was like a house of cards. It all came crumbling down. That is not what's going on today. So we want people to remember that. Does that mean there are no problems at all? No, there's always something to deal with. But don't conflate Silicon Valley Bank with Lehman Brothers. So in 08 and 09, well, in 08 and 09, I mean, I go back to what we said earlier. Did did those executives and, and bank boards and, and people that were in decision-making position, did, did they remain disciplined when things were good? No. I mean, no, no they, they did the polar all. opposite. The polar opposite, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and so that's the same thing with SVP. I mean, it, it's just about decision making, not getting caught up in the hoopla when things are good, uh, and remaining disciplined because you just never know. And I'm telling you right now, I do it, not. It agree reminds me of my favorite, my favorite Warren Buffett quote, which is, "You can always find out who's not wearing pants when the tide goes out." Um, you know, people are standing in the water and times are good. The tide's in, you're feeling good about yourself. Remember to go put your pants on, um, cause it, it eventually goes out and things always happen. We're always going to be faced with challenges and difficult decisions, but creating optionality. And, and that just means so many different things in terms of your investments and your financial plan, have a plan, then you can assess what you need to do if and when things change. But if you don't even have a plan to begin with, 
you don't have anywhere to start. You know, Brian, after 25 years, I thought I had heard all of your quotes. I'm writing this one down. <laughs> I will use that one in my next meeting. That was awesome. <laughs> well, this well, is, you know, I like to keep it down home. <laughs> Well, this has been a, a great discussion and a great conversation. And um, so, uh, to to all of our listeners, you know, the the thing that I'm getting as the as the outsider, you know, moderator, uh, the the non expert in um, financial planning, is um, to what what Brian just alluded to, which was, you know, uh, you can't make decisions about a plan and where it's going if you don't have a plan. And you, and you can't have a plan unless you have someone that can help you to set that, you know, get that plan in place with the looking at the time horizon, your risk tolerance. And so the ultimate answer for me as the outsider is, um, is to, because it seems to me as we, as we go to land this plane, um, uh, is it true uh, that your clients are asking you questions and they're, they're coming to you for, uh, uh, for advice, like what should we do? Should we be concerned? Uh, I mean, you're you're um, you're getting questions from your clients like crazy, right? Uh, as, as this unfolded, oh yeah. And I had I had an hour long conversation about this particular topic the other day. And granted, it's unique. Uh, not everybody has boatloads of cash laying around, but for this particular client, it was important for me to be able to provide some calm and comfort and. It wasn't just, oh, you're going to be okay. It's you're going to be okay because we're going to do X, Y, and Z that's going to provide a higher level protection than you currently have. And, you know, that's where we encourage our staff. Everybody's worried about artificial intelligence and is chat GPT going to put us out of a job? Chat GPT is not having the conversation I had with my client the other day. And the client was very thankful. And you can tell why we have jobs. And it's usually because during times of stress, we can be that calming voice and lean back on the client's plan and say, we're okay. We know we can you know, take the hit that this is providing right now because we have flexibility and optionality. So yes, it always just comes back to having that plan. Well, to add on to that, I mean, during times of, of unrest, you know, of, of nervousness, you know, such as this, 08 and 09, you know, back and even in the technology boom and bust in 2000, you know, it's an opportunity for us to, show clients that we do and we we preach remaining discipline uh, when things are good because you just never know i mean there are many times that we get questions about why we have say international uh stocks in our portfolio because domestics have beaten international pretty handily over the last 10 years and we're real quick to show them the data and why we do that because at some point you might want international into that in that portfolio and it reduces risk you know maintaining discipline uh and focusing on aligning your portfolio with true risk tolerance and time horizon is what we do and we might always not always look the best in the short term but you know this this is a marathon this is not a sprint okay and so we we actually enjoy putting that on display and, and letting people know during times of unrest that we already thought about that well, r- really, really well said as we, as we go to close this episode, uh, genius comments there uh, at the end. Um, I, I can't write the one-liners down fast enough, but I, w- I will later when I listen to the recording. So uh, so thank you to, uh, to Henry Weidman and to uh, Brian O'Neill, both uh, partners at uh, Cahaba Wealth Management. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, be on the podcast today. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for being here. 
Thank you, MJ. I Thank appreciate you very it. much, MJ. So to all of our listeners, uh, hopefully you got uh, some great nuggets out of that um, uh, great conversation, uh, really great stuff. Uh, we would uh, always ask you uh, for your uh, five-star review, uh, your five-star rating. Uh, and if you're able to write a review about the uh, There Is A Better Way podcast, um, <laughs> granted, sometimes it's not easy to figure out how to write a review. Uh, I've been... I've I've been guilty of having to Google, you know, how to do it on this particular podcast service myself, but uh, I, I I know Apple Podcasts, I know uh, I know how to do that one. But uh, if you have a different podcast service, if you're on uh, Outcast or uh, uh, Anchor or Podbean, uh, you might uh, just Google how do I write a review uh, for this podcast. The reviews are very helpful um, to us, and we appreciate them. And uh, so thanks, everybody, for being here. And we will see you on the next episode of the There Is a Better Way podcast. That concludes this episode of There Is a Better Way. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check back regularly for new episodes and get connected to the wisdom you'll need to make confident decisions about your family's financial future and well-being. We'll see you on the next episode.